So for those that don't know me, I'm Phil. I'm more usually making cheeky comments on the live chat, but alas, today I'm not able to. Um, I do preach occasionally. It's a bit like asking your goalkeeper to take a goal. Um, it's a little bit exciting, slightly unpredictable, and afterwards you realise why it's not often done. Anyway, welcome to the third in our Advent series. Morag did a great job last week, and today we study people meeting with Jesus before and after he ascended to heaven. Now, it might just be me, but when I hear stories of people meeting with God or amazing healings, I sometimes feel more like Eeyore than Elijah. These stories are great, but I'm tempted to think they happen to other people, to super-Christians who are more holy than I am. I'd like to start by saying that an encounter with Jesus doesn't happen because you are perfect, but because he is perfect and merciful, and therefore we don't have to be. I'll let you into a little secret now. Even our perfectly polished celebrity couple, Jim and Rachel, are not quite perfect. I even heard a rumour that once Jim stopped smiling. <laughs> I've heard other people disqualify themselves because they don't think they know enough um, to, to pray or to meet with God. Again, I want to encourage you that there's no minimum level of knowledge required. If there was, then the early church would have stopped with Jesus uh, because most of his early disciples were not scholars, but they were um, uneducated fishermen. And some might think they can't join in because they have doubts or questions or even actively argue with God. Again, I'd like to encourage you that this is allowed. And if, in fact, if you look through the Bible, you'll find it seems to be quite normal. Even people we think of as examples of faith, like Moses or Abraham, um, argued with God or even questioned his promises. We don't have to pretend God isn't fooled by our Sunday face. I sometimes think that we are tempted to treat God like an elderly relative. We have to be on our best behaviour, we have to be polite, we have to say the, the right things and offend, uh, avoid offending his feelings. Um, he, of course, is not offended because he already knows what you're thinking and the doubts and questions you might be having. We can be entirely honest with him and maybe we should be more honest with each other as well in admitting our questions, our doubts and our uncertainties. Martin Luther is quoted as saying that pride, not doubt, is the opposite of faith. On the subject of doubt, then, some Christians seem to be rather scared of it. I discovered in a few minutes of searching on the internet that some get very upset indeed and suggest a Christian should never have doubts. My brief search quickly descended into the usual online forum nonsense, so I stopped looking. I personally do not agree with this vehement reaction to doubt. And I think there are some useful parallels to draw with the scientific nature of proof, that of testing different hypotheses to find the correct one. Maybe in Christian circles, we shouldn't be afraid of asking questions. It's not unbelief, it's stress testing our convictions and our faith. However, in order to avoid causing anyone problems, I'm going to talk in terms of having questions or uncertainties, rather than calling it doubt for the remainder of this talk. Today, then, we're seeing how Jesus continues to meet people, even in the midst of their uncertainties and human frailty. Jesus meets us, even before we fully understand. Before we look at the Bible, there are two sources I found helpful 
when preparing this talk. The first is a short, free PDF by John Mark Comer called We Don't Know What's Going to Happen and That's OK. It's a helpful look at the uncertainty due to COVID, but more importantly, it looks at how we can learn and grow during times of uncertainty rather than just surviving and wishing it was all over. The second is a book by John Ortberg called Faith and Doubt. Um, I found this to be helpful, but also almost enjoyable. Um, so I've talked for far too long without mentioning the Bible, and Jim's looking a bit twitchy in the corner. So let's start with a quick example from the Nativity story. Consider Mary. She heard some very strange things, firstly from the angel Gabriel, then from a random selection of people who visited the baby, and subsequently as Jesus was growing up. But she seemed to have this ability to hear things that she probably didn't understand fully. But she held on to them, she accepted them, and she waited to see the fulfilment. Luke mentions this twice in chapter 2, in verses 19 and 51. And in both cases, it uses a similar phrase. Mary treasured these things in her heart. Compare this with Abraham, who was promised a son and then had to wait 24 years. He did less well. Initially, he didn't believe God. And then he tried to make it happen with Hagar, his wife's servant. Hardly his finest hour. This is a helpful reminder to me not to get busy with my wife's servant, but instead to think if I've heard something from God, I want to see it fulfilled immediately. And indeed, I often assume that it should be imminent. Mary had the knack of hearing and believing without having to see it happen immediately. Sometimes God's promises are for the future and we have to learn how to treasure these things in our heart rather than trying to help God by making them happen sooner. Now let's move on and look at a different reaction to experiencing God, this time from John 20. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So here, Thomas doesn't just have some slight questions, he actively refuses to believe. So why did I include this? Well, Jesus' reaction is gracious. He helps Thomas to a point of belief by understanding his weakness. John Stott noted that Thomas was not with the other believers and commented, we're always more likely to find Christ in the company of the faithful than in a lonely vigil. Not meeting face to face is, uh, is difficult. However, we should beware of the dangers of giving up and we should use the things we're fortunate enough to have, such as micro home groups, Sunday services online, and now the new hybrid model of church that's happening in mid-January. And that should help us to stay engaged with others. It's much easier for us to lose our way, like Thomas, when we're isolated. In passing, N.T. Wright added, verse 29 isn't so much a rebuke to Thomas, 
as it is an encouragement to us, the subsequent generations who believe without having seen the risen Lord ourselves. Now time for some light relief. I saw this cartoon online and it made me chuckle, so I thought I'd share it with you. Thomas is pictured saying, all I'm saying is we don't call Peter denying Peter or Mark run away in the net Mark. Why should I be saddled with this title? Maybe we should all just call him Thomas instead of doubting Thomas. Turning to Acts 8 now, um, starting at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. <clears throat> so what were Philip's instructions in this story? Well, he was to start walking in a certain direction then walk, or probably run, alongside a chariot, and then just to see what God was doing and react to it. For me, the most striking thing in this passage isn't the possible reference to teleportation at the end, but instead the fact that Philip was so used to obeying God's leading that he went for a walk through the middle of the desert, possibly in the middle of the day, without quibbling. Then he went up and started talking to somebody who was not only a stranger, but also rich, powerful, and foreign. In reading the passage, I also wonder if um, the eunuch might have had quite a retinue with him, and possibly some guards if he was in charge of treasure. So in approaching the, the, the chariot, Philip had to exercise quite a lot of courage, along with overcoming social norms and barriers. I'm not going to dig into any more detail here, but it's worth noting in passing, if the Ethiopian was a eunuch, then he'd have been excluded from the inner courts of the temple in Jerusalem and therefore could not fully enter into worship until Philip came and brought the good news. Let's skip forward a bit, staying in Acts, this time to chapter 9. In verses 1 to 9, Saul encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus and ends up blind and fasting. Let's pick it up from verse 10. <clears throat> now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a, name of, uh, sorry, a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, 
And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptised and taking food, he was strengthened. There's again lots in the passage that I'm not going to dig into, but today we're just going to focus on Ananias. Let's look at verses 13 to 16 again, but this time use the message paraphrase. Ananias protested, Master, you can't be serious. Everybody's talking about this man and the terrible things he's been doing, his reign of terror against your people in Jerusalem. And now he's shown up here with papers from the chief priests that give him license to do the same to us. But the master said, don't argue, go. I've picked him as my personal representative to Gentiles and kings and Jews. And now I'm about to show him what he's in for, the hard suffering that goes with this job. Now, in my head, perhaps irreverently, Ananias sounds a bit like an incredulous John McEnroe arguing with the umpire. However, note God's gracious response. He could have told him just to shut up and do what he was told, but he was patient and actually explained more about his plans. Ananias appeared to doubt the reality of Saul's conversion and definitely questioned the wisdom of seeking him out. However, he obeyed and the results were incredibly significant. God used Paul to not only bring his kingdom to those who are not Jews, like me, but also to write significant portions of the New Testament. Looking at verse 17, Ananias addresses Saul as brother. The one who is attacking and killing believers is now part of the family. He then lays hands on him. Personally, I think I might have been shouting from the door while getting ready to run like mad, but Ananias does it right. He takes a risk and gets right in to the danger zone. I like this picture of faith. Question, maybe even argue, but then go with nerves and uncertainty, but in obedience. Notice also there doesn't seem to be much separation between spiritual and practical matters. Ananias prays for Paul to be filled, He's then healed, Paul's baptised, and then they have a meal. God was in all these things. And I'm going to skip over the fact that it appears that Paul was filled with the Spirit before he was baptised in water. If Ananias, Paul and God don't seem too bothered, then I guess it's okay for me too. I'd like to move on now and share some stories from members of the church. These were sent to the email address stories at kingdomvineyard.com and I'd like to thank those who sent them in for their permission to share them. I won't do the voices because that will get me in lots of trouble <laughs> with my wife. I really felt God speaking to me in the word shared this morning, God is a strong tower. Yesterday I was discussing what our names mean and if they match what we're like. My name means tower because I'm the kind of person that likes to try to control everything and try to keep everyone up all on my own. I felt God saying to me this morning, you're not the strong tower, I am. 
This came at a time when lockdown and work have been getting to me and the relief of God being my strong tower for me is very welcome. Thank you, God. And now on to the next one. I tripped in the house last week, running to the door for a Fisher and Donaldson cake delivery and went over on my foot, really hurting it. It swelled up a lot and has been very sore and difficult to walk on since, also making any walks outdoors with my son an impossibility for days. This has made lockdown even more difficult and confining. This morning during the service, when it came time for the sharing of words and pictures, I actually laughed to myself, thinking it would be funny if someone had a word about my foot. Then they did. A sore right foot. I gasped so loudly that my son came running through to see what was going on. I placed my hand on my foot and prayed along with Jim during prayer and gently massaged my foot. I was instantly able to move my foot in a full circle. The swelling went right down. I jumped out of bed. Yes, I was watching church in bed and ran around my bedroom. My son and I both screamed and he said, oh my gosh, I didn't know God really was real, mum. We are very excited about going for a massive walk after lunch. Thank you, God. I'm crap, but he still chooses me. What a time. So I chose those two stories because they just reveal the reality of God meeting us wherever we're at. So let's wrap up. Hopefully you've heard that Jesus still meets people and he doesn't exclude us. It's okay to encounter Jesus, even while you continue to have questions or concerns. We should be honest with God and with each other and admit what we're really thinking or struggling with. I found this quote from James McGrath to be helpful. Questioning involves courage. Refusal to allow one's beliefs to be challenged involves fear. And so which should be called faith and which should be called doubt? For those who have disqualified themselves in the past, I hope that you've heard that God does not do that. You can have an encounter with Jesus and be part of the story. For those who don't yet consider yourself a Christian, but you'd like to know more, you'll never have all the answers. Maybe, like the Ethiopian, you've heard enough and you should respond today. If that is you, please get in touch with office at kingdomvineyard.com so that we can help and support you. And for those who are struggling and feel like a failure or you're just in mourning that you no longer experience the excitement of being on the mountaintop with God, listen to what John Ortberg wrote. Here's the sad truth about the mountaintop. No one is allowed to remain there permanently. Everyone had to return to the valley of ambiguity. You are not a failure. It is normal to have ups and downs in your spiritual life as in all other areas of life. I should just add, if you're struggling with depression or mental health, then please get to the doctor as well as asking people to pray for you. But to finish off, let's look at some well-known verses in Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This 
is the triumphal conclusion of Matthew's deliberate account of the life of Jesus. And yet included in there at the end of verse 17, some doubted, some wavered, some were in two minds. Jesus didn't seem to care. He was undeterred, as it says in the message. He gave them his charge, his command, his great commission. He sent them out anyway. So let's all step out with Jesus, even with our uncertainties and struggles. He knows, he cares, and he still calls us.